Greetings, Caffeine Nation. Last time we spoke, Australia was interested in getting south. The French were making noises about island territories. The Scots whalers weren't impressed with their take, and the Norwegians were thinking Antarctica could be a good earner. A Norwegian living in Melbourne when the Australian Antarctic Expedition Committee started making noises but getting no traction. Henrik Bull, disappointed at the lack of funding available for Antarctic exploration in Australia, took his enthusiasm back to Norway and shared it with Sven Foyne. Just 15 minutes into Bull's pitch, Foyne offered Bull a ship to sail to the Ross Sea, figuring Ross's reports of plentiful whales should not be transposed away from the areas Ross sailed as occurred with the concurrent Scottish and Norwegian voyages recounted last episode. Foyne put forward a veteran steam-powered whaler called the Cap Nor. Refitted, though still only suitable for hunting right whales, and renamed Antarctic, Foyne put Leonard Christensen in charge of the ship, generating a leadership conflict we'll see repeated in several other expeditions. Voyages with more than one person in command or with more than one person thinking they're in command, are problematic. History demonstrates again and again that in trying conditions, autocracy, so long as the leader isn't some incompetent sociopath, serves communal interests better than any committee. Ships and teams operating in the trying conditions of polar regions tend to suffer when leadership hierarchies are not clearly defined. Leaders given or perceiving equal footing might start out with the best of intentions, but a single misunderstanding or moment of peak can precipitate a rapid decline into an ever-tightening spiral of gainsaying and countermanding that kills morale and places lives in danger as resources and people are used as pawns in paranoid games of one-upmanship. Foyne's experience in funding and fitting out successful whaling voyages didn't prevent him giving both Christensen and Bull the impression that they were in charge, and this led to problems down the track. In the case of the Antarctic, it only led to friction, but in other expeditions, well, we'll deal with them as we get to them. The voyage plan involved three stages. Norway to Melbourne, taking in the South Atlantic sub-Antarctic along the way, Melbourne to the islands south of New Zealand, and from there to the Ross Sea, whaling all the way. Departing Tonsberg in September 1893, only fin whales were encountered in the Atlantic. The crew of the Antarctic killed over 1,500 elephant seals on the Eels Kerguelen, taking the resulting five tonnes of oil to Melbourne to fund the victualling for stage two of the voyage. While the crew received a warm welcome from the Australian Antarctic Committee, some people expressed disquiet at Norwegian ambitions in the waters already considered British by many in the colony. The oil and skins fetched a poor price, £3,000, which, set against Foyne's £5,000 investment, didn't bode especially well and the time spent collecting it postponed the search for the Ross Sea whale stocks until the following Austral summer. Based on a presentation Bull gave to the local Royal Society outlining whaling prospects in Antarctic waters, a Melbourne-based syndicate offered to buy Sven Foyne's interest in the voyage. Foyne requested £10,000. The potential investors balked, and the deal fell through. Bull stayed in Melbourne to make preparations for the Ross Sea, as the Antarctic sailed for the second stage of the voyage. The ship spent the winter whaling off New Zealand, but secured only one right whale. 
several others being shot but lost due to faults in the new harpoon system. At the Campbell Islands, the Antarctic went aground and the resulting repair bill of £2,000 put the expedition further under the pump to succeed in the Ross Sea. Ivan Astrup, an Arctic ethnologist, bird expert and close companion of Arctic explorer Robert Peary, and William Spears Bruce, one of the frustrated naturalists from the Dundee expedition mentioned in episode 21, were due to join the Antarctic in Melbourne. When they couldn't make Melbourne in time to join the ship, Norwegian immigrant and family friend to Bull, Karsten Egberg Borkrevink, came aboard. Recognised as generally useful, his claimed qualifications didn't come to much in real terms. New officers' quarters, slated for Astrup and Bruce, were never built, and Borkrevink spent the voyage berthed in the forecastle with the crew. The Antarctic sailed for the Campbells once more on the 26th of September 1894. The sealing was already over when they arrived. They sailed south for the fictional Emerald Island and, what with it not existing at all, didn't find it. They headed north to Port Chalmers on the South Island of New Zealand for repairs. Two crew deserted there and several others refused to sail south. Replacement crew sourced on Stewart Island added Kiwis to the multicultural nature of the Danish, Swedish, Polish, English and Norwegian crew. Sailing south, the Antarctic encountered icebergs and pack ice in mid-December. The ship crossed the circle on Christmas Day and the pack became increasingly dense. Eight days of dicing with ice ensued, but the ship reached open water behind the broad belt of pack. Reaching the Ross Sea in January 1894, Bull made a landing on Possession Island where Borkrevink found lichen growing on the rocks, providing the first record of terrestrial life below the circle. The landing party erected a post topped by a box containing details of the visit. The landing gave Bull confidence that a continental landing would not prove as problematic as previous expeditions suggested. At midnight, with the ship lying at anchor off Cape Adair, Bull, Christensen, second mate Bernhard Jensen, Borkrevink and three crew lowered a boat and rowed for shore. In spite of one well-documented and one likely landing occurring prior to this, everyone aboard the boat assumed they were the first to set foot on the continent, and the excitement felt at this prospect saw three conflicting claims come of the one landing. Borkrevink claimed, long after the event, that the urge to catch a jellyfish he saw in the shallows prompted a lunge over the gunwale, noting the happy coincidence that this lightened the boat sufficient to make Christensen's alighting entirely dry. New Zealand seaman Alexander von Tunzelman claimed he was the first ashore as he steadied the boat for Christensen. Christensen claimed he jumped from his position foremost in the boat and onto the shore as the bow reached the beach. Who's correct? Who knows? I don't doubt that Borkovink did try to gazump everyone. Reading about him reminds me of my old DS, and he certainly was of a nature as to wet his pants if he thought there was some bragging rights in it and to claim he was doing you a favour into the deal. Borkrevink's own illustration of the alleged moment doesn't even try to hide that he was being a dick, to the dismay of his companions. Bull only commented on the novelty of being the first team ashore. By opting to give himself this first in team form, his account fails to shed any light on what actually happened as the boat reached shore, but given how landings usually occur, I think Tunzelman preceded Christensen, 
and that Borkrevink did seek to upstage everyone by jumping into the shallows. In matters Antarctic, being first to do X honed the human penchant for individual glory to raise a keenness. The away team spent two hours ashore, killing two seals and erecting a post topped by a box painted up with the Norwegian flag and some details about their visit, all the while keeping the aggressively territorial Adélie penguins out of pecking range with whatever came to hand. Recognising Ross's primacy in the area, the post, with its unflappy flag, was erected more as evidence of their presence than as a claim. Rocks, seals, penguins, seaweed and the jellyfish formed the scientific booty of the landing. The Antarctic made an approach to the Balleny Islands, but ice precluded a landing. A sperm whale was caught en route back to Melbourne, but the spermaceti and oil could only act as a token gesture toward the large financial deficit the trip represented. The expedition was a commercial failure, but scientific interest in the geological samples, including that of the prominent Australian geologist, Professor Tennant William Edgeworth David, gave Bull some solace. Both Bull and Borkrevink lectured on their experiences and projections on the potential wealth available in Rockwell form to Australia's south, but no one attending the events in Melbourne and Sydney saw fit to stump up funding for further work. Sven Foyne would never learn how comprehensively he'd done his money on the voyage, as he died before news of their geographic successes and commercial failures could reach him. Bull recognised that to make money whaling in Antarctic waters, they needed to adopt the newly developed Arctic model for making use of rockwall populations. Fast chase boats, able to manoeuvre in close ice conditions, and fitted with rockwall-appropriate harpoon-compressor combinations, backed up by shore stations to process and store the oil and baleen. Given the limited number of options for shore stations, Bull thought that larger, slower factory ships might serve in their place. And he wasn't wrong, with the Chaser Factory Ship Division of Labour holding ground in Antarctic waters to this day. Borkrevink recognised that Cape Adare could support a party through an Antarctic winter and might provide access to the South Magnetic Pole, and that Antarctica offered him opportunities for notoriety and historical significance. Where Wilkes comes across as a stuck-up martinet, Borkrevink reads as a mirror to the most avaricious bullies I've ever encountered. My own experiences of spending time in Antarctica in close company with a modern-day Borkrevink equivalent saw me become extremely wary about the invitation south that I take up. That said, the voyage of the Antarctic and the seeds it sowed in Borkrevink's mind stand out as the start of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, wherein the goals of expeditions increasingly focused on land-based rather than maritime exploration. The rest of this episode is going to comprise an interview with Antarctic diver Rob Robbins, recorded about 10 years ago. If there's anyone in the world with more experience diving under Antarctic sea ice than Rob, they're keeping it pretty quiet. Um, do you got any particular title that you like to go by? Uh, well, my title is I'm the supervisor of dive services. That's how, how long have you been coming down I, here to do I've that? been working here for 27 seasons. So you've seen a lot of changes. In the yeah, 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 it's changed quite a bit. It used to be run by the Navy, is that right? Well, it, the Navy used to have a much bigger presence. The National Science Foundation runs a show down here. That's always been the case, well, since IGY. Uh, but the Navy used to 
provide all of the support to the to the program, uh, and that's you know gradually been taken over by uh, civilian contractors. So basically, there's no Navy here anymore. The National Guard's doing the uh, the flight operation stuff now. Uh, the you know commercial helicopters and, and such. So uh, yeah, the Navy's completely out of it now. So. And how did you reach this point in your career? How did you get a unique job? Well, my background is in commercial diving, and so I've worked in the Gulf of Mexico doing oil field kinds of things. Um, and came down here, we were doing uh, commercial diving stuff down here. So the, the science diving and the, the construction or the commercial diving were two complete separate operations. Uh, so we did things like put in the uh, the seawater intake and the sewer outfall and work at the uh, the pier at, at Palmer, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so I was exclusively involved in commercial stuff. And then they decided instead of having two different tracks, we'll combine all the diving under one, you know, operation. So now I'm in charge of the construction diving and the science diving. And how many divers come through with that on the season? It, it uh, varies considerably. This year, 17. Uh, last year, 34. So uh, it, there's quite, you know, it just depends on the science that gets funded. Uh, and that the number of divers isn't a, a super good uh, indicator of the, the level of diving. Uh, last year, with 34 divers, I think we made about eight, a little over 800 dives. Uh, in previous years, with closer to 20 divers, we made like 1,200 dives. So it, it's you know it's hard to say how much diving is going to be done by any particular group. And what sort of special challenges does working in such a cold environment hold for a scuba diver? Yeah, for I mean the the big thing that that we deal with, you know, the, our biggest concern is is our regulators and making sure they work well. We actually did a fairly exhaustive test series back in the uh, oh kind of mid 80s looking for a, uh, a regulator that works well down here and, and now have come up with this particular one we use which is a Sherwood Maximus um, and it has we have about 7,000 dives on those regulators now and have a 0.3 percent failure rate and that's free flows they, they get iced up and, and, uh, and they free flow uh, the the next best regulator that we've had in our study is uh, Poseidon Cyclone 300, and it had a 1.7%, so pretty pretty big difference. So when they fail, you say they ice up and free flow, so you're losing losing all your, your air. Your gas, yeah, so yeah. And primarily what happens is, yeah, ice forms on the second stage valve so it doesn't close, and then air escapes through it. We use two completely separate regulator systems on our tanks, so if one starts free flowing, you can turn it off. And, uh, and go to your secondary regulator, so you always have a, a backup. Uh, but still, you don't want that to happen, you know, so. And how do your divers combat the cold? Like they're diving in water that's almost minus two degrees Celsius. Right. Um, well, I mean, we use dry suits with a considerable amount of underwear. Uh, the, um, the big issue is really is, is your hands. It's hard to put enough on your hands and still have an ex enough dexterity to do anything. So for me, that's usually the thing that, that gets cold is, is my hands. Um, but, you know, it's really not all that terrible. <laughs> it's, not, it's not too cold. Most, I'd say our, if we went through our entire da 
dive log database and did the average, the dives would be probably around between 30 and 40 minutes, 37 minutes or something is probably our average dive. Uh, so it's you're not in for a really extended period of time. Some dives are much longer, but most of them are, are in that range. And do you just dive in the summer, or is there a program that goes right through the winter? Uh, we have had winter diving, but just three winters, and, and not for some time. There was winter diving here in 1981, 1985, and 1986, and those are the only uh, diving winters that we've had here. And So in addition to the, the cold and the regulator problems, you would have to supply light no matter what time of... Right. And, yeah, and we... During the winters, we used to use a surface-powered light, so uh, you just throw that down the hole and have a generator running, and that's how you know you could you could have a lot of light that way. Uh, divers also had carried hand lights, but to tell you the truth, with the the sea ice not having gone out in front of uh, station here for six or seven years now, it's dark under the ice now. The ice right out by the jetty, which normally is about eight foot thick, that's what I consider average. It's 17 foot thick this year, uh, and there's dirt and snow and more dirt and more snow, and so it's dark under under the ice now. It's actually, it's not exactly night diving. You can see if there's cracks or whatever, you can you can kind of man, you know maneuver your way around, but it's dark. You can't read your gauges or anything. So, and so on top of the problems we've already discussed, you still have to make a hole somehow to get into the water in the first place. How, right. how did the how's the McMurdo program deal with? Yeah, that? what we do almost exclusively or at least in you know in uh, the near area is we have a large drill it's it's basically the same sort of machine you'd see back home that that puts telephone poles in you know a big diesel power drill the one we use has a four foot auger in it so it makes a four foot hole um, takes about 10 minutes it, it goes through the ice pretty quickly it takes a while to set it up but once once you start drilling it it drills right through the ice so we we can pretty easily make holes locally we'll use a drill up as far north as cape evans uh if we're diving further away and we do some diving like across the sound uh some of that we blast holes with the explosives some of them we melt using uh we just make a small hole with a hand-powered auger, put a, uh, a glycol circulating hot finger, we call it down there, and it, and it melts a hole. And you can melt a hole in about 24 hours, big enough to dive through. So that's, and we do some diving in the Dry Valley Lakes, and that's all done by melting a hole. Now, listeners are probably very interested in the sorts of animals you get to see. I know that there's no sharks this far south, but are there any predatory like killer whales or leopard seals? That yeah, you do. For most of the season, you don't see anything much at all, really. There are, there are a lot of Waddell seals uh, near town here, and so you see those pretty regularly while you're diving. And then just all the invertebrate stuff that lives benthically on, on the bottom or what have you. Um, late in the season, uh, you can see uh, leopard seals or killer whales, uh, but they don't. Neither one of those animals really uh, travels under the fast ice, so the ice has to be broken up. So that's when the the icebreakers in town, or on a normal year when the ice goes out, you'll see that. I've only ever seen one leopard seal in McMurdo, right off of that point. Although I've seen them at the ice edge and at places like Cape Crozier and, and Cape Washington. I've done a fair amount of diving on the peninsula and we see them there quite a bit and we 
get out of the water when we see them. You know, they're quite a serious predator. They they really are. Uh, they're just scary looking for me. <laughs> so, but I've I've dove. Uh, we were working on a film down here several years ago, and we were diving with orcas, and they're big animals, and and obviously swim a lot better than you do. Um, but they don't worry me nearly as much as leopard seals. I I was a little uncomfortable getting in the water with the orcas at first, but uh, once you're in there and we were just filming, and we were pretty close. You couldn't quite touch them, but they were just past that range, uh, and they didn't seem to be bothered by us at all, and it didn't take that much notice of us. So. And of course, there's a, a death from leopard seal. From leopard seal, yeah, on, at Rothera on the peninsula. and. Uh, which is funny, there, in fact, in, in our reading room, there's a, uh, an article, a skin diver magazine of some sort, it's not skin diver, but a diving magazine, uh, that had a, an article about leopard seals, tourists diving on the peninsula, and they seem to be happy to see the leopard seals, and they, oh, leopard seals, and they all jumped in the water, and they're taking pictures, and that sort of thing, I'm going, huh, you know, I wonder if maybe we'll, we're just a little bit too paranoid about these things. And it wasn't two months later, after this article was published, that the woman was killed at Rothery. It's like, hmm, I guess we're not that cautious. <laughs> the tourists just probably shouldn't be in there with them. They do turn up on the Australian and the New Zealand southern coast occasionally. Sure, They're, they're yeah. very mean-looking animals. They are really wicked-looking. <laughs> uh, and yeah, they've, they've done a fair amount of damage to the boat. We use Zodiacs at, at Palmer Station. And um, not often when you're operating the boats, but when the boats are just sitting there more near the station, leopard seals will come up and bite the tail cones and, and do, you know, fair damage to the boats. So. And the diving that you would have done at Palmer and out on the Antarctic Peninsula would also be a very different story, not just in terms of seeing leopard seals and orcas, but you wouldn't be working under fast ice, you'd be working that's, among... That's correct, it's fresh, it's either open water or, yeah, just pack ice. There is on occasion uh, fast ice at Palmer, but not not one every five or six years. There'll be fast ice for a period of time, but but not often. Uh, yeah, mostly open water and, and some pack. And icebergs are a problem if it's windy or uh, not not for most of the diving we do. Um, the diving is all done out of zodiacs and. Basically, if you can drive your zodiac, if the pack's loose enough to drive your zodiac through, it's easy enough to dive in and out of. It It can pack up a little bit, you know, in the wind, but in general, uh, that hasn't been much of an issue for us. Uh, we do some diving, the program does some diving uh, off the, the research vessels on the peninsula, and there have been one or two occasions when they're in much heavier ice because the research vessel can go through a lot thicker ice than, or a lot, you know, densely packed ice than, than a Zodiac can. And so uh, they'll use the uh, the props to kind of blow an area clear in the stern of the boat and dive through that. But that can, if you're in thick pack, that can close back up with the wind. So it's something that we have little diver recall, you know, noise maker things. So if the pack's coming in heavy, the, the tender can notify the divers and bring them back to the surface. Um, you, um, you have your own protocols here. They're separate to the protocols used at Scott Base for yes. diving. Yes, what sir. are the differences in the way that the, the two nations approach yes, this? Yeah, it seems primarily, the, the biggest difference that we see are uh, 
we don't in general we don't use tethers and that's that's unusual I would say that's not standard in uh, in ice diving most most places where you go ice diving people use tethers and, and the folks at Scott base use tethers uh, and we don't during the bulk of the season simply because the visibility is incredible you know many hundreds of feet uh, we have a downline that we use and we'll put flags and strobe lights on it so you can see where the hole is and we find that to be sufficient uh, in fact a lot of the divers that we get aren't necessarily uh, super experienced and uh, find that people people have a, a hard time with the tethers and sometimes the tethers become more of an issue than than not having them at all so so when the visibility is good we we just die without them. Uh, most years, the uh, the visibility does decrease late in the season. Usually, December, January kind of time frame. Uh, there's a plankton bloom that comes in, and uh, the visibility can drop from 300 feet to 10 feet just in a day. And then once the visibility drops, then of course we're forced to use tethers. Most of the diving that we do is completed by that time of year. The sea ice, the surface of the sea ice gets, you know, kind of messy uh, round about the middle part of December, and so it's hard to get out to, you know, different locations. So most of the research is kind of concluded by that time. So uh, we do, this year we have a project that won't show up until the first part of uh, January, so it'll there'll be a small amount of diving associated with it so that that'll undoubtedly mean using tethers but uh, and we'll be diving it all we'll, we'll drill a hole just right at the last few days that they'll allow the heavy equipment to be on the ice uh, we'll make a hole out near shore and then people will have to walk to it to dive uh, it's not like the sea ice is getting it's going to get thin and be dangerous to drive heavy equipment on but the surface gets really messy and it makes it hard. So. And you've got a hyperbaric unit here. We do. In fact, I, I just came from there. I'm sorry, late. Uh, we we have a chamber here that's uh, it's in a little building between the firehouse and medical. Uh, and um, we have a crew of five people that operate the chamber. And then the physician here, of course, is in charge of uh, prescribing the treatment. Um, so we... We've had the chamber, we, we, the chamber actually came down to McMurdo in 1984 to cover some construction diving we were doing. It, it was a, uh, industrial regulations specified that there had to be a chamber on site. And so we, uh, we actually leased the chamber to cover that operation, which lasted about three years. And then we were going to send it back, but decided, you know, we do actually quite a bit of science diving here. We might as well keep the chamber. So since 1984, we've treated 10 different cases in the chamber. So it's it's nice that it's here. I, as a potential end user, I'm certainly happy it's, it's around. So 10 cases in just over 20 years. Yeah. With the level of intensity of diving here, that actually sounds like quite a low strike rate. It, yeah, it is quite low. In fact, the, in the uh, out of the 10 cases, four of them were aviators with possible decompression sickness. One of them was a diver with a possible air embolism, and five of them were divers with possible decompression sickness. Now, all of them, I say possible uh, decompression sickness or whatever, uh, all those cases except for two of them, I would say, hmm, 
is this person bent? It's it's possible, you know, and, and we have the chamber. It doesn't cost anyone anything. Let's let's just do this. It's it's certainly not going to hurt them. Uh, two of the cases were fairly obvious. Okay, this person definitely has decompression sickness, but but most of the cases have been uh, more well. It's it's there's a potential that the it's a hard diagnosis to make, you know. So it's potential they have them. So we'll we'll do that treatment. Thanks very much for talking to Radio Tuna. Um, this is Matt MacArthur. I've been speaking to Rob Robbins, one of the southernmost scuba divers in the world.